0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM.
1: You're listening to Your Money
0: on Business Radio.
2: Hello, welcome back. Ken is professor here at the Wharton School. You're listening to your Monday Series XM, channel 132 for the rest of the show. You know the routine, I have a financial planner with me, taking your calls about your own financial situation. So if you want to know how to save for retirement, kids college, paying down debts, maybe grandma just left you a bunch of money, whatever it is on your mind about your money. Now's the time to call live on Tuesday. So grab the phone, give me a call here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. And welcome back to the show. Uh, Patrick uh, Cote is the founding partner of Asset Grade in Boston, Massachusetts, like all other advisors on this show. He is fee only in memory, we always memorize only fee only, not fee based. And he is uh, accomplished in many different ways, including, most importantly, having his MBA for, from the Wharton School. Welcome back to the show, Patrick. Thanks, Ken. Glad to be back. And so, Patrick, uh, we'll go back to the phone lines in just a minute here. Uh, Before doing that, just remind us a little bit about your firm. And if you have a typical client, you call them, in fact, Henry's. You can explain that. You know, what what is a Henry? That's the guys you get, the people that you kind of focus on uh, uh, for the most part. You know, explain what that is and what what a typical client's like.
1: Sure. So we have, uh, so our firm asset grade is, uh, we've got three offices or, in the Boston area, uh, Georgia, and uh, Illinois as well. And we focus on Henry's, the high earners, not rich yet. So they're typically folks who are in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, most of them are still working, and so hence the high income, or high earners. And not rich yet, so typically uh, the the, the asset levels have been increasing over time, we find, but typically a few million dollars, uh, uh, anywhere from 250,000 to to up to like $5 million, uh, typically in investable assets. So they're a segment that's often ignored by other, uh, other advisors. Uh, there's a lot of focus in the industry on the, on the ultra-high net worth. So certainly on the folks uh, with, with less than a million, there are much more limited options that are available for them.
2: Yeah. Again, speaking with Patrick Cote, funding partner of Asset Graded in Boston, Massachusetts. If you got a question, love to answer it here about your finances. Here at one eight four four Wharton, that's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Let me go to Nick calling from Colorado. How can I help you, Nick?
3: Hey, how are you?
2: Good. How can you yeah, help you? Hey, so
3: I just have a yeah. So I just have a couple questions. Um, so my wife and I are working on we're we're closing our refinance um, on our home loan. We're going from a twenty to a thirty year, or I'm sorry, thirty to a twenty year. Yeah. Um, and saving about you know a one percent APR on that. And with that, we're um, taking a little extra cash out and paying some some debts, some credit card debts, um, home equity line off, and things like that. And through that process, we're saving around eight hundred dollars or so a month, um, and just, you know, debt payments. And so I was just curious to get your thoughts. Um, should we pay off our student loans first, or should we pay off our two auto loans first?
2: Yeah. So that's pretty amazing. I mean, it's so sometimes the value of refinancing, if you're going from a 30 to 20. But how many years were actually left on that loan? I mean, I yeah. presume it wasn't uh, 30. So uh, how many years was left?
3: No we were in year 27 in year so we're
2: saving about 7 years too Okay, so it's it's about saving. So you save about seven years, uh, saving a bunch of money per month, and it sounds like you got some uh, cash out, which is pretty, uh, pretty amazing. So uh, sometimes the real value of uh, being able to refinance. Uh, So how much uh, money are we talking about um, that you're uh, this kind of one-time cash out that you're able to uh, to do? And when we talk about the other debts, um, what are the what are the amounts and what are the interest rates? and then finally you know i'm trying to understand your emergency account situation how much have you set aside for that
3: yeah so the total just you know, i guess you can call it unsecured debt the total amount is going to be about i would say 13 to 14000 um just in the unsecured debts. and then the home equity line that we're paying off as well is about 25000 um and you know we were really kind of drowning in the monthly payments so our savings situation is Definitely less than ideal. With you know, basically nothing um, saved outside of my four hundred one k. Yeah,
2: and so this. Yeah, you, you said the thirteen and twenty. What's rough ballpark? It. What's what? What would be the highest interest rate on those uh, those loans?
3: Um, it would probably be a credit card of, of about twenty percent.
2: Twenty percent, and how much is that? Uh, are the credit cards component of all that?
3: Um. The credit cards are probably uh, ten thousand of 10, that.
2: Th- okay, and you said you're getting how much cash out from the from the loan?
3: So the cash out is going to be used to pay off the the credit card.
2: No, how much um, cash out are you getting altogether from the loan? Um, you said you're getting some cash there's out. There's how there's much? There's- how much cash?
3: yeah so the when I said we're getting cash out i i meant we're we're getting the quote unquote cash to to pay off the yeah
2: how much the, cash the credit card so that that's
3: Thirty
2: thirty thousand. Oh, so thirty thousand. Okay, and just to be yeah. clear, uh, that thirty thousand it, it does mean that your essentially your loan would be against your home is about thirty thousand dollars higher. I'm just trying to understand Correct. the the, yep. the, the, the yep, trade-offs right. there. Okay, so uh, yep. so you you have the credit card debt at, at ten thousand. Um, that's twenty mm-hmm. percent. And what are the other debts and what are their interest rates?
3: So the other debt, the the biggest one would be the existing home equity line. Yeah. Um, on that, and I think the interest rate on that was about five and a half.
2: Okay. And how much um, how much money then, is that? Uh,
3: twenty five thousand.
2: Twenty five thousand. Okay. <laughs> yeah, five yeah. percent. Okay. And then you basically yeah. said you don't really have much of an emergency account. And how safe right. is your kind of? household income we would normally talk about amounts and so forth but how safe is it does it yeah is it are you paid on commission or is it variable or is it more no, pretty steady
3: I am yeah I'm, I'm salary base salary with with a little bit of bonus um, on top of that and then my okay. wife is um, a government worker so she's pretty stable as well
2: okay and do you have
3: kids yeah we have three kids
2: okay do you have life insurance Okay, so let's assume you're kind of covered there, but you said the emergency account is a little light. And so tell me, what's your monthly expenses, including the mortgage payment? Just ballpark it. We're talking about 5000 bucks a month? Like, how much are you talking about?
3: Yeah, um, I would say with the—so uh, when you say with the mortgage, you mean the new mortgage amount?
2: Yes, yep. Mm-hmm.
3: Um, yeah, so that would be about— yeah, probably.
2: I, I would say forty-five to five thousand is a good ballpark. Okay, so five thousand, and so it, yeah. it, you and you said your wife has a government job. Your job, you also mm-hmm. feel is fairly uh, stable as well. Um mm-hmm. so, okay, so often we talk about three to six months worth of expenses that we want to set aside uh, in terms of emergencies. Okay, so Patrick, uh, your thoughts on what? Uh, they made the decision that they take out the $30,000, uh, 10000 in high interest rate credit cards, HELOC, and then um, emergency accounts, how would you divide up the money?
1: Well, it's, uh, the only other question, it sounds like you covered a lot of the key uh, yeah. questions I was going to cover. Uh, I also wanted about the student loans and the auto loans. Do you know what the rates are? Uh, Nick, do you know what your rates are for those, the interest rates? Um,
3: the auto loans are, I would say, four point five four for, okay. for both cars and then the student loans i i have no idea to be honest with you my my student loans um aren't too terrible i would say they're both the secured and the uh, or subsidized and unsubsidized are probably right and around that that three to five range as well and then my wife's um are totally separate from mine so i i would wouldn't even have the, the fondest idea of what those would be
1: okay okay well, it sounds like so. With that 30 that you're going to be cashing out, it sounds like the the uh, mm-hmm. most obvious thing to start with would be paying off the 10k in credit cards. That's uh, the the 20%. Yeah, yep. and then yep. then it starts yep. to get a little less black and white as we go from there. Um, the HELOC you mentioned paying that off, and is that a requirement mm-hmm. for the refi, or is that an option for you?
3: Um. It's a personal requirement. I just it, it's an extra three hundred or something dollars a month that an expense that if we
1: can pay it off and kind of absorb it into the into the refi, I'd rather just do it. Okay. okay. And you'll still have that Heloc yeah. available afterwards, even if you pay yeah. it, it'll still be available as a line of credit, is that right? Yeah,
2: yeah, it would be. Yeah, okay. that's right. So okay.
1: okay, so yeah, so that yeah. Uh, yeah, so that well, what's nice about that is if you pay, that paying off that, um, that $14K, in the, or so the 10 k in credit cards, uh, you'll still mm-hmm. have about 20 k left, and you'll be able to pay off most of the HELOC with that, the home equity line of credit. Yep. And then also over time, as you're building up, you, you have, have a chance to start building up a little bit more cash for your emergency fund. And just given your yeah. situation where you're both, well, it was certainly your wife's job is secure, and it sounds like yours is, is secure as well, you you probably wouldn't need that much. You'd probably be on the low end of that range, so that three, you know, th- Kent mentioned three to six months. You're probably good with three months' worth of expenses there. So you'd want to start saving on the side to start building up towards a 15K target in your emergency fund. Yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah. So Nick, just 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 to summarize, with the thirty thousand, I think it's a no-brainer. Hit those ten thousand in credit card debt, uh, twenty percent risk-free return. You just can't beat that. The other uh, interest rates look like they're pretty tied in the sense that you have um, you. you, They're roughly around five, six, seven percent. If they're, you know, I would say if one of them is like seven percent, maybe hit that one a little bit harder at first. We like to rank. Um, are payoffs by interest rate. Uh, and so what you do is you um, pay off the highest interest rate first as aggressively as possible, making the minimum payments, to the other ones, and then uh, kind of work your way down. The advantage, if, if they're all kind of in the same five-ish range of the HELOC, is yeah. that what Patrick's uh, getting at is that the HELOC itself can be part of your kind of buffer uh, for in case you know things happen. So you don't necessarily uh, have to get that 15000 Emergency account immediately. You could maybe uh, work on uh, bringing down the HELOC. Because worst case scenario, you could always kind of bring that back up if necessary. Having said that, you know you do have to keep in mind banks aren't this sophisticated. But you know the HELOC could potentially be closed on you or uh, reduced if you know there's material change in kind of your earnings and so forth. Um, if this was a business-based HELOC, that certainly would be the case. It's not. Um, so it's uh, it's. it's it's uh, it, banks are usually not that sophisticated, but nonetheless, um, it, I, I would the way I'd probably break it out that thirty thousand. Put you know at, of course ten thousand is going to go to the credit card. You got twenty thousand left after that. I would of that twenty thousand, I would be kind of tempted to put you know between five and tenish toward your emergency account now. Uh, it, but you know you, I'm fine if you want to start at five thousand and the rest uh, bring that HELOC uh, down. Give yourself some some capacity there. In a worst case scenario, you can always uh, 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 borrow against it uh, because unlikely that that facility would be cl- uh, closed. Uh, if there was a material change in kind of your income earnings and so forth. But there is uh, sometimes that risk. And so that's that's really the game plan for for you, Nick. And um, and it, you know I think it's it's great that you're working your way out of debt. For your emergency account, um, really don't put that money into a checking account. Anything is that sits in a tech checking account kind of is easy to spend. Instead, of what you want to do is open up an online savings account, uh, completely separate. And not only do you get a higher interest rate, um, make sure it's like a savings account so that you know you actually have to transfer. Transfer money, you know, it takes a couple days uh, to do it. You know, come 2021, that won't be the case. It won't take a couple days. But, you know, it would be, you know, a couple days to make that transfer. And it really reduces the temptation for impulse buys and things like that. Uh, just to kind of have it out of sight, out of mind, have a little sand in the gears if you're trying to get access to the money. Because if you need it for an emergency, a couple days is certainly fine. Um, but it's, it's usually, just avoiding the temptation um, is one reason we like to have it in a separate account, plus to get a little higher of interest rate. So, thanks so much for calling, Nick. I uh, really appreciate it. And again, speaking with Patrick Cote, yeah. who's the founding partner at Asset Grade in uh, uh, Boston, Massachusetts, uh, doing a great job as always answering your questions. And so, give us a call. I'd love to answer your question about your own personal finances here at 1 Wharton. That's 1 844 942 7866. So, uh, P- Patrick, you mentioned you, you focus a lot on this Henry uh, uh, group, and a lot of these are kind of higher income but low assets. And of course, you you know you're a generalist trained quite well. You can take your calls about really anything about uh, from callers out there, anything related to personal finances. Uh, in the case of Henry's, a lot of times they do um, get you know company stock, and they can often come in the form of you know, restricted shares, ISOs, you know, and ESOPs and so many other things. Uh, uh, and so what do you think uh, is, in obviously sometimes cases that there's just not a lot of uh, latitude until stock is vested and there's maybe other restrictions as well, what people can do with that stock. But once that freedom, you know, to do things with that stock comes, comes along, you know, what do you think people should be doing with that company's stock?
1: Well, that's a great question. And, and the, um, we're actually seeing that quite a lot just with given the bull market. So we've had a number of clients go through that and all different permutations. And, you know, I think the first step is really to understand the tax situation because it can really vary tremendously. So depending on how they're actually receiving it, whether they're receiving uh, ISOs or non-qualified or restricted shares, so you know, the, the tax treatment can really differ. And it's, it's quite complicated, and, and often it's not made easy for the, the people from their companies. They might get these large legal documents, and they don't really summarize how all this stuff works. So there's a lot of confusion, too, because even, even the uh, – you know, oh, what often happens, and I've seen this with, with uh, several large companies, they'll uh, allow the, 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 uh, my, my clients to actually see those holdings in a brokerage account. But they really don't make it clear what's vested, what's unvested. So they'll see very large numbers, but then when everything is said and done, by the time they get their vested portion and then the taxes are taken out, it can actually be a lot smaller, especially if they leave the company. So it's really important to make sure that. So the first step is really to make sure people understand what they actually have and what would be available today, and then from there, it's then taking a look at just you know how much exposure they have to that one company. Yeah. So, you know, having a concentrated position like that is not a good thing, necessarily. <laughs> you know, I think most advisors would, would start, uh, you know, especially if, if there weren't going to be tax consequences, uh, it would be pretty black and white to start diversifying immediately. Where it gets a little bit trickier is if there are big tax consequences. And so then it's being thoughtful about what to do when, having the pretty frank conversations with the, with the, the, the client to understand is that um, you know? Are they going to be taking a big tax hit if they if they sell off all of those shares immediately, you know, and, and basically setting up a budget, if you will, for uh, starting to realize capital gains if they have a really large amount? Yeah, and, and obviously trying to get it structured so as long-term capital gains as possible too. Trading off not holding on to too much. Like you don't want to have, you know, eighty, ninety percent of the of their assets tied to their employer. So not only do they have their their income yeah. tied to one company, but then most of their assets are tied to the same company too.
2: Yeah, and that's that's the real problem with a company's stock is that um, it's not just a non-diversified, a very focused play. Um, it's, it's highly correlated with your human capital. That is what you're getting from your labor income that makes it especially non-diversified. And that was, in fact, why your employer does it. They don't want to create some stickiness to try to keep you uh, uh, around. But at the same time, from your perspective, you want to try to you know, on you know, create more diversification as an employee. So, so but that's sometimes that you know, um, sometimes employees they feel like they're showing lack of loyalty or lack of tr- you know faith in the business, or you know, they don't want to convey to their managers that they you know are potentially cashing some of that stuff out to diversify because you know they're signaling that maybe I don't think this you know uh, I'm not cheer- the cheerleader and thinking that this <laughs> is necessarily going in the right direction. So. Do you have to sometimes counsel your clients in how to have that conversation in the cases where that's needed?
1: Absolutely, and so it's it's they're they're worried about how it's perceived of the company, and they also, you know, often believe in the company themselves. So, which is you know often tied to, sure. to working there. You know, so they're a strong believer that oh, you know, we've got this new product coming out or X, Y, and Z, and you know we should be doing even better in the future. And this is where. You know, for the perception side of it, if it ever does come up, I I tell them to to blame it on me. You know, what I'm saying? Yeah. their financial advisor is telling them they need to diversify; they're just too concentrated in one. So, you know, they're starting. That's that's part of the plan. So, which which is a very reasonable argument. You know, that somebody objective would be telling them that they should be doing that. So, it can help to actually have somebody behind the scenes telling them that. And then, secondly, the the other thing too is that, when you start getting to this, like if they. You know, if, if you think about if bad things happen, right? So if they are, say, they, they have that, um, you know, I'm in the Boston area, so we see a lot of uh, clients working at life sciences or tech companies here who are in this position. And so if something bad were to happen to that sector, then not only would uh, they potentially lose their job and then take a hit on their assets, but it might actually be hard for them to find another job right away if all of a sudden everything got hit, you know, in that particular sector. So it's it's really... Taking a holistic perspective and just saying, you know, what what makes sense from a risk perspective for that individual, from their portfolio of their assets, but also even just thinking about their future income, too.
2: Yeah. And speaking with Patrick Cote, again, the funding partner of Asset Grade in Boston, Massachusetts, they, they always does a great job <laughs> – uh, answering questions on this uh, show. So give us a call. I'd love to answer your questions about your own personal finances. Maybe you got some debt or want to figure out if you're set for retirement or maybe uh, you just got a bunch of money that bequeathed to you, want to know what to do with it, want to finally get an investment policy or plan that put together. Uh, now's a great time. Live on Tuesdays to give me a call here at one 844 workton That's one 7866 So when an employee leaves uh, their employer... Do you think they should exercise the options that they often have? Um, be, a lot of the times these options, you know, they, they have expirations, um, you know, later on. So, but, is, is, but they could potentially exercise these options, before, um, you know, ahead of time um, if, if, if it's invested. So uh, do you think they should exercise these options when they leave the employer uh, or they should just uh, write them out?
1: Well, I think it depends on each situation. So, you know, some of the time, in fact, you know, there's a good portion where uh, there's going to be a period where they want to hold on to the stock for a year after exercising in order to get the long-term capital gains tax rate. So, you know, potentially starting to do that immediately or at least even starting to phase that in over time. So it really depends for each situation. Um, And then, and obviously if, if, depending how it's structured, a lot of the time, there is no out-of-pocket cost, but sometimes there is. Uh, sometimes, if uh, if the company is still private, they actually uh, would they leave that company. They actually have to pay out of their own pocket yeah. if they want to exercise the uh, those options, and that can be a really tough decision because then, you know, so you're you're paying extra like, out of your pocket, out of your savings to do that. And Those could be significant amounts too, and so, uh, so those those are those are uh, those are uh, uh, not black and white decisions to make at that point.
2: Yeah. And- Often, you're if you're leaving, especially you're, you're essentially making a, a choice. You're in reflecting a lot of factors, including what you think is the f- financial direction of the company. So that was certainly uh, would be part of that decision. You know, cashing cashing up even more money uh, to take a fairly non diversified position. So again, speaking of Patrick Cote, uh, uh, funding partner of Asset Grade, got a question about your own personal finances. <laughs> Live on Tuesday. Now is the time to give me a call. Love to answer questions here at 844 Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. And uh, so, how if all if at all, I mean, should um, people take into account you know the significant amounts of privately held shares in their portfolio? I mean, uh, different advisors have different rules, and so you know if it's like. For a private company, a lot of times the advice is you know you just don't count it because who knows? Uh, Some people put haircuts in. Uh, If it's a publicly traded company, of course you can use the fair market price. Uh, So what's your kind of rule of thumb uh, there?
1: Yeah, that's a great uh, great question. There's and there's a range there too, depending on the nature of the company. So if it's a really young company uh, that's far away from um, from some any kind of exit. For the for the, the the for the person, then at that point, it's it's really tough to include them. So we wouldn't actually include it there, but we have somewhere uh, they're actually established companies that are so they're not really startups anymore, but they are owned by private equity. So large firms, but just they just happen to be privately held, and they have um, uh, some of the time they'll have these pseudo shares or kind of quasi. <laughs> they're not quite common stock, but they're kind of uh, pseudo shares that, that they'll provide to uh, to employees and often executives and so those ones do you know they can end up being a significant part of the of the person's portfolio so we will include those but on some kind of haircut and it's it's a little bit more art than science when you when we do it like that yeah so. It's often around the 50% range for the haircut, but it's really hard to say. I mean, it really depends on each situation.
2: Yeah. And again, speaking with Patrick Cote, uh, doing a great job answering questions. Give me a call here at 1-844 That's 1-844-942-7866. Let me go back to full lines. Uh, Jim calling from Maine. How can I help you, Jim?
4: Hi. Um, my wife recently left her job, and she had accumulated some um, company shares inside of her retirement account and uh i, I just listening to your program. it may be a good idea for her to get out of those shares now that she's no longer with this company and i I know the cost basis was fairly low. it was i think uh, uh, twenty three thousand dollars and then but the stock has grown to about three hundred thousand now,
2: yeah, and I didn't
4: know about the implications of that. It, Am I going to get a hit on my income tax? You or, said this is and, a it, you
2: know. this is inside of a retirement account. So, or is it a qualified stock option plan? What, what do you know exactly what type of account this is?
4: It was not a part of an incentive stock option plan. It was not part of a qualified stock option. It was part of a retirement plan. I guess that she was able to purchase uh, shares uh, at a um, discounted rate inside of her. Uh, preferred shares of stock, or uh, I guess um,
2: right.
4: I don't remember quite off the top of my head. But what type of
2: account is, are they being held in right now, Jim?
4: And it, they're being held inside of. Uh, we get a statement from her company retirement plan, and in that retirement plan, it lists out all the mutual funds, okay. and then it says it's employee common stock fund. Uh, D, I yeah. I think okay but and, um, it's it's it,
2: not it's not necessarily a 401k is is what you're saying no okay no. okay yeah that that would be uh that was would be my guess as well so but you you believe it's a tax deferred uh type of account or uh you're not sure
4: it is a tax deferred account
2: so it, I mean when okay. we
4: called them after she left we did call the plan administrator and they did say that the cost basis is twenty three, and now the stock is worth about three hundred thousand. And I, I didn't know, uh, you know, okay. what the implications. And of how much more? That.
2: How much money do you guys have saved up for retirement at this point?
4: Uh, oh, enough. <laughs>
2: okay, but <laughs> I'm, I'm trying over, to understand: is that yeah. three hundred thousand a small, com, a small part of it, or is a large part?
4: It would be like maybe uh, about about. Uh,
2: uh, Sixth or seventh, so we have about two million saved. Okay, all right. So uh, it's a, a little, maybe a little more, ten percent, uh, call it about fifteen percent uh, of your uh, uh, savings. Uh, so Patrick, uh, your thoughts there? Uh,
1: well, first of all, congratulations to her. It sounds like uh, it worked out quite well yeah. to, to being at that company. That's yeah. like quite a. Was that over a short period of time, uh, from the twenty-three K to three hundred? Took
4: twenty-three years, and oh, okay. it was. Yeah. One of these plans that got phased out, I guess, it was, you know, they were able to, she was able to purchase at a discounted rate inside of the retirement plan, and um, it's a large consumer products company, so they... You know, they and they, she was able to purchase
1: more shares with dividends. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as
2: well. Yeah. So, okay. so I think we get this up. So, so Patrick.
1: Yeah. So, I, I think just because it's it's tax deferred, it makes it pretty easy. Yeah. Uh, so it, it really. to so what I was saying earlier, you would really want to diversify there. So, you know, even even though it it sounds like it's you've done well, both you and your wife have done well in accumulating assets, which is great, and uh, you it still wouldn't want to have. You know, one sixth of your assets in one company like that. So, uh, so it would. It sounds like this would be a good point. You know, there's no tax consequences to selling it. Yeah. And then just diversifying it. Make sure it fits as part of your overall portfolio. But then you could start to be well diversified across, whether it's an S and P 500 fund or your other asset classes to make sure you're well diversified. Yeah, and
2: really the key, and this comes. This is what's crucial for your question, Jim, is you. Um, there's no question that you want to diversify, even at 15 percent of your total entire portfolio. It's a it's a heavy concentration, <laughs> and uh, at the same time, you really want to make verify, triple verify the tax uh, situation there. If it's a tax deferred account, then that cost basis just doesn't matter, because <laughs> what's going to happen is that um, you're not going to be paying taxes. This isn't like a taxable account, uh, but so you really want to you know triple check what that account is, but if it's truly a tax-deferred account, um, there's no question I would sell that $300,000. You're not going to have to worry about the tax consequence of that uh, as a capital gain, do keep in mind that you're going to be paying taxes on the way out uh, when you eventually yeah. cash out that money, uh, maybe in the form of RMDs or however that is. But just really triple verify that that's a tax-deferred account. And if it is, no question, uh, I would be paying out, I would uh, be cashing it in and diversifying. And by the way, even if this uh, there were some tax consequences, what people, people embellish it a little bit too much, you know, I would, you know, it's always good to defer um, paying tax as much as possible. Economists say that, you know, the present value is of, you know, resources higher, of a dollar is higher today. If I get, you know, get to save a dollar today than in the future. But at the same time, um, it's, you know, interest rates are pretty low. <laughs> and so, um, exactly, and they're probably going to be low for quite a while. Uh, so exactly when you can uh, pay those capital gains is, Likely not to be mere, uh, as important as getting uh, greater diversification. So push yeah, eventually you're going to be paying uh, taxes in the corpus of the, uh, and then in fact on your withdrawals from the from the plan. But it, it, so even if there were tax consequences, I'd would, I would still look to diversify. The only exceptions to that would be you know if I'm toward end of life and you know I'm going to get I'm about to die. <laughs> you know in that case I don't want to necessarily diversify. If I have a very small cost basis, because I want to pass those assets to my heirs, and they all enjoy a reset in that cost basis upon my death, known as basis reset. But nonetheless, uh, if that's not the situation here, um, I I would definitely, and this is truly a tax deferred, it's it's a no-brainer, sell it and uh, get yourself a... Cheap, very diversified Vanguard total stock market fund or something equivalent to that. So, thanks so much for calling, Jim. Really appreciate it. And let me go to Nia uh, calling in California. How can I help you, Nia?
5: Hi, how are you guys? Good, good. I've been meaning to call for a long time, so I'm really glad I just was able to get on the phone. But the question I have is um, I was laid off in 2016, but I've still kept my 401k with the company. I'm not sure what to do with it.
2: Okay, so let's focus on that. Do you know what the expenses of the four hundred one k? You said it's two th- two thousand fifteen that you were laid off. Sixteen. Sixteen. Okay, so it's been sitting there for almost three. years. Do you know anything about like the expense ratio, or you know how how much fees that is being paid or deducted from your account uh, for the four hundred one k?
5: You know it? No, I don't.
2: Okay. Well, I'll tell you it's probably higher than what you could you would be paying if you did a kind of a rollover IRA. So it's just uh there are sometimes exceptions to that, but the if it I assume it's a private company, it's not state and local government, it's not the federal government. They were just talking about a private company, is that right?
5: Yeah, it's a private company. And the only reason I assume that it was it was lower is just because it's a really big company with employees in uh
2: 300000 or more. Yeah, well, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it, it's it's that low, but that, you know, the expense ratios so are typically higher in 401k programs because there's a lot more management and record-keeping uh, requirements and potentially even if they allow you to take off loans uh, against your 401k, things like that. Uh, yes, what are you yes. doing today? Do you have a new job, a new employer that has a 401k, or what are you doing today? Nothing as of
5: today, just
2: Staying home with the kids. Okay. Well, that's that's a full-time plus Perfect. something uh, job. There's my mother's case with five kids and her youngest was just a rebel rouser who just, you know, yes. later, yes. you know, finally they, they made him get a radio show to try to calm him down a little bit. But nonetheless, yeah, that takes a lot uh-huh. of time. Uh, and so, uh, it, Patrick, it seems, yeah, there could be exceptions here, but probably a uh, rollover IRA. Yeah, I, I think that's the case. And, you know, it's funny because about 10 years
1: ago it was the opposite. You know, the 401k plans often had lower fees than what yeah. you could find if you went out yourself and opened up an IRA at Vanguard or Fidelity or wherever. Now it's now it's the case, as Kent was saying. So now the, the fees are lower. If you go out and open up, do you have a, an IRA uh, yourself already set up?
5: I do, uh, and I have very minimum contributions right now, um, just because I don't have a lot of income coming in. Sure.
0: sure. Um, so,
5: but I didn't know if I should move it all. It's through like a credit union of mine. Um, but I didn't. Yeah, that's what, like my big decision is, what am I going to do? And I just keep putting it on the back burner. Yeah. And so I pa- always assume I left it there because it's a big company. Yeah. It should have lower fees. Was my assumption.
2: Yeah. So Patrick, uh, when wrap yeah. this up. I mean, in, in any case, even if she had a regular IRA, would you recommend moving the money into that? I mean, typically, it's just open up a separate rollover, isn't
1: it? Yeah, that's what we typically, do. And, and well, first of all, I would confirm that uh, your contributions were all pre-tax. They probably were, but just confirm that you do not have any Roth contributions in there, because that, that's that's an op- option sometimes, so just, uh, yeah. if you yeah. don't know, just confirm that's the case. And then, I would open up an IRA. I mean, the, I'm not sure how good the one is at your credit union, the ones at, at Vanguard and Fidelity are good. They're cheap. You know, there's no cost to them, essentially, and, and the, the fees are so low. You're probably going to get a lot more options. Yeah, for, uh, investment options to them. So I'd open it up there, and then once that IRA is open, then you have to call your old employer, the record keeper. So whichever company uh, actually holds that 401k, and then whoever's sending you the statements. In other words. You have to call them and then roll it over to your new IRA. Yeah.
2: So, just to wrap up, (laughs) a good chance, I mean, it's, it's Vanguard, Fidelity, Schwab, so forth. Just go for a really low cost. Uh, you know, uh, IRA. It's unlikely you had Roth money in there, but if you did, you know, you might have to open up two different accounts—a Roth or in a traditional. You just verify certainly that, but assuming it's all traditional, you open up a traditional uh, rollover IRA. You could call it Vanguard. A lot of those companies, the like Vanguard, Fidelity, Schwab, and so forth—they can even help with that account transfer process and uh, uh, bring you through the steps. So, I first step just. Pick a company, Vanguard, Schwab, Fidelity, all, all those, uh, and uh, help. Uh, they'll often help you with the rollover process, or they'll tell you what to do. You can contact them on their websites, give them a call, and so forth, and they'll bring you uh, uh, through the steps. But I think in this case, it's pretty clear that's that's going to be your next best option. And then, you know, certainly you want to ch- uh, pick your investments wisely, go for something really low-cost, well-diversified, Vanguard, total stock market fund, Schwab, Fidelity now offer these at very low-cost costs, sometimes zero costs, and just to kind of get your business in the door. And make sure you really invest that money. Don't hold it into in a, <laughs> in a, a sweep account that just making no interest. Really, do uh, deploy the money. And Vanguard will certainly make sure uh, that that happens. They don't have the sweep account of the same nature. So, Nia, uh, yeah, thanks very much for, for the call, and good luck with that. Glad that that was a pretty straightforward decision. Let me go to Margaret calling from Washington, D.C. How can I help you, Margaret?
0: Margaret. Hi. Um. Actually, my question has since evolved since listening to the last. Wow. Callers. All right. Um, I, you know, I was originally told you're a screener. I said, well, I was going to ask you, like, well, when do you know you have enough? And I, I guess I know. <laughs> never. I'm there. No, no, I'm kidding. I know exactly. I'm it's kidding. Like I'm never going to stop. I love working. This so is I'm why you go to
2: Patrick, to and he first it gives you emotional support and helps you figure out when is enough. But go ahead, Margaret.
0: Absolutely. Well, my, I've got a multifaceted question. Okay. Very, it's very, very um, timely because I've been. My Just, first just dive right, dive right point, in. When is it too? When is it that you have too much in one institution? I've grown up with Vanguard. My dad's a Vanguard. My brother's in Vanguard. Yeah. And I've got uh, my net. Our net. I mean, we have no debt, but I have at least 1.5 in Vanguard. Um, it doesn't. It, it's all. I would say. Half a million probably in um, stocks and sector funds. Okay. And then the rest are in Windsor or, um, you know, those, sure. the other mutual yeah. funds. Yeah, but
2: your real question is, do you have too much money, not in those particular funds, but it's really in Vanguard. That's that's your concern. Is that is that right?
0: How do you know? Yeah, like what happens if—, if God forbid something happened.
2: Okay, so let's focus on that question because that's a really important point. We only have a, a couple of minutes uh, left anyway. Uh, so, uh, Patrick, I- explain that. There, there's a big difference uh, between the institution like Vanguard, what we call the custodian, and what you're actually investing in. So like, explain that difference and why uh, the institution is a lot less important than what you're investing in.
1: Yeah, sure. So, because uh, to Kent's point, the the institution is just holding your your money. So, as opposed to the underlying investments. So, the underlying investments they're, they're, there's far more risk with them having issues than with like Vanguard as an institution, because Vanguard is a cooperative. It's it's owned by the uh, by, by the uh, the shareholders, and so it's not likely to go bankrupt. Uh, so that's that's ex- extremely low risk if that's part of it if that's part of your concern there's much more risk with the underlying investments themselves so that's i would definitely pay more attention to that there is insurance too just to make sure that the institutions don't so there's a uh, sipic uh, insurance which is a uh, $500,000 which just makes sure that your investments are what they're supposed to be so it doesn't actually guarantee the underlying value of the investments but in case the custodian in case the actual brokerage firm went under your uh, the, the value of your investments would be guaranteed up to that $500,000 level.
2: Yeah, and that's more like a security blanket, if anything. Because, <laughs> Margaret, let's take this—because uh, it's a great question, and it's a source of a lot of confusion. Part of what made things so confusing was the financial crisis of 2008 and what happened in Europe. Uh, when Lehman went down, uh, a lot of investors in uh, Lehman in Europe, Lehman Brothers in Europe, lost their money. Because in Europe, what happens when you give Lehman your money— They they actually weren't serving as custodian. What they were doing is you're investing in that company, and that company happens to make other investments. So when Lehman goes down, you went down as well. Lehman Brothers in the United States was really brought down because of Lehman Brothers outside the United States inside the United States there's a lot more separation so Vanguard you're not really investing in Vanguard Vanguard is what we call your custodian they're just the guys uh, doing managing the traffic they're kind of just making sure the money comes in goes in, into the right into the right place so in theory if not Van, Vanguard can't technically go bankrupt because it's, it's, it's employee owned but nonetheless theoretically suppose it it just had it, management problems and Vanguard dissolved, your money's still invested and it, a, a state custodian would take over, or the SEC in this case or uh, would take over and uh, would distribute that money or move that money to another custodian. Um, this, what's called the SIPA is really kind of an emotional insurance policy. This really is for the small broker-dealers. You're kind of afraid that maybe there's fraud there or maybe they invested their money. They said they put your money in the S&P 500 fund. They really didn't, and that's kind of the security blanket for that. Uh, but nonetheless, don't worry about the, the institution. Worry much, much more about your actual investments. Thank you very much for, for calling. We got to bid you well. And Patrick, fantastic job for coming in on the show. Once again, you can find out Patrick by going to his website, assetgrade.com.
0: For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.